I love, I love these, these Easter services. And one of the things that I love to do um, is I love to be able to see kind of the crowd that I am speaking to. And so I have a question just to kind of get a feel for where you're at today. And I'm going to ask you a question and I'm going to ask you to raise your hand to identify if this is you. And so if you're new with us, don't get nervous. Like I'm not going to ask you some uh, like revealing question, I promise you. But here's the question. How many of you in this room, you would describe yourself as an inquisitive person? Just raise your hand. Let me look across the room. Okay, not as many as at 9 a.m., but it's still a fair amount of people. Um, and what I mean, does everybody know what I mean by inquisitive? Like, you're just someone who loves to ask questions. And, and that's, not a, that's not a bad thing. But have you, ever been, have you ever been in a classroom setting? Like, some of you, you can refer to this because you were just in a classroom setting maybe a week ago. You're a college student, high school student, junior high student, um, maybe a grad a grad student, and you ever have, you always have those certain people in a class, it doesn't matter how big the class is, and they love to ask questions all the time. And like, you're in that setting, and I remember I was recently in a setting like that, and we had about 40 of us pastors in a room, so these are pastors too, and so we're not, we're not removed from this, and, and I remember there were certain individuals that would love to raise their hand and ask questions, and man, sometimes, man, my sinful nature would come out, and I'd be like, that is such a stupid question. And they would just love to ask questions over and over again. And, and I remember when I was a grad student, one of the things that I did when I was in seminary is, is I taught at a Christian school in the morning. I taught seventh grade students Bible. Like I had two classes, 30 seventh graders in each class. Just imagine that. Like you, like, that's just way too many kids in one classroom, but... <laughs> 37th graders in each class that I taught. And then in the afternoons, I taught freshman college students New Testament survey. So like an overview of the New Testament. And I remember not so much with the freshmen, but with the seventh graders, like I would always have these kids in the class and I'd be, I'd be teaching them something and, and we'd be in a place that they wanted them to get this because I knew it was going to be on a test and I wanted them to understand. And you always had those kids. We got any teachers in the room? Raise your hand. Any teachers? All right, we got some teachers. So, you know these kids. They're like this the entire time. And you're like standing right here and you're like, dude, in your mind, I see your hand. There's a reason why I'm not ask, asking you and to give me your question. But they're just up there like this, like this. Right? So they would be inquisitive people. Maybe you're not like that anymore. I hope you're not like that anymore. But, but you ever... You ever notice there's some times where it's a good time to ask a question and it's a bad time to ask a question? And I was thinking of this week, what are some bad times to ask questions? So we're gonna, I'm going to need your involvement. So when I, mention, when I mention each of these, I want you to like hold your arm up with your thumb up and saying, I agree, thumbs up, I disagree, thumbs down. You got that? You got that? That wasn't too hard, right? It's 11 o'clock, man. You guys are wide awake. Um, so think about this time. You ever been on a road trip with your kids? You're in your minivan, man. You're going to your destination. And what's the question that you hate? No, no, don't say it yet. I'm, sorry, I'm building up to this. What's the question that you hate to get asked? Now you could say it. What is it? 
Yeah. Are you there yet? So when you're on a road trip, is that a great time to ask, ask that type of question or bad? Thumbs up. Bad. Agree? You agree that's a bad thing? Anybody thumbs down? Like, no, I actually think that's a great question. What about, what about this? What about, um, what about this, this question? When you're watching a game, like maybe it was even last night, if we have any basketball fans, I mean, we're in the state of North Carolina, so probably most of you are basketball fans, and how many of you love it? Like you're like, oh, I love it when I'm watching a game, and the person that's watching it with me just keeps asking questions. Now we're going to say, we're going to flip this now. Thumbs up, you love that. Oh, there's some of you. God bless you. How many of you hate that? Thumbs down. Yeah, yeah. Not the greatest time to ask a question. And we could go on and on with, with funny things, but here's what I want you to understand. Here's what I know to be true is it's good to ask questions. And there's great times to ask questions. And there's great places to go to get our questions answered. And some of you may have come into this room and you have questions. And they're not silly questions. They're not stupid questions. They're good questions you need to be asking. Some of you are like, well, man, I came in here today and I just threw a bone to my friend because they wouldn't stop bugging me to come to this church. And so I was like, well, I'll come on Easter and some of you are like, man, like, I don't even know what, what's going on here. Like, um, and you're like, I don't know what this is. I don't never been in this situation. You got lots of questions. And man, I'm glad you're here if that's anybody in here. Some of you are dealing with something that's just an unbelievable situation. And you can't even put it into words. And what should be a joyous time and a celebratory time on this day where we celebrate the resurrection, if you're really honest with yourself, inside you're reeling and you're like, man, I don't know how to reconcile this situation in my mind. I'm here to tell you that's a good question. Because I believe with the questions that we have that are heavy or that are, or that are just searching type questions or whatever, what I love is that the resurrection of Jesus Christ and what we're going to look at today, I believe, answers some of life's greatest questions. And so the title of this message this morning, if you're taking notes, you came in this morning with, with something to take notes with, and you can or you don't have to do that. Here's the title of this message this morning. It is around what I just shared in the theme of questions. It's just simply this, I have a question. Because some of you may be saying that, I have a question. Not sure I believe this. I have a question. I'm not sure how to reconcile this that I'm going through right now. And so I want you to turn in your Bibles to Matthew 28, verses 1 through 10, and we're going to look at this resurrection account. Because in every one of the Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, we, they each give an account of the resurrection. And each account emphasizes different things. I think it's interesting is one of the things that people love to do to refute that the resurrection didn't happen and to look at the Bible as a bunch of errors is they love to look at the different accounts of the resurrection in each of the gospels and say, see, that one said this, this one said this, they contradict one another. And I don't know if you've ever found this out, but whenever you're trying to figure out what's going on, I've mentioned my, my 
background in teaching, man, when I'd gather seventh graders and something be going on and I'd have to gather them together and ask them what went on, you know what? It's like you're a detective, right? This one's going to emphasize this, this one's going to emphasize this, this one's going to emphasize this. May all be true, but they each saw it in their own lens. And that's exactly why we have different nuances emphasized in each of the gospels. They're not all exactly perfectly aligned with everything that they emphasize. And let's be real, if they were, we would have more of a reason to say, I'm not sure that's legit. But what I love is regardless of whether two women were mentioned to be at the tomb or a bunch of women were mentioned to be at at the tomb or whatever it is or how many angels there were or whatever it is, one thing we all know that they all say, Jesus rose again. And so here's the idea that I want you to get today. When we think about the questions that we've come in here with today, it's this, that Jesus' resurrection provides the answers to life's greatest questions. The resurrection of Jesus provides the answers to life's greatest questions. And so would you look with me in Matthew 28, verses 1 through 10, and I'm going to begin reading In verse 1 of this account, of Matthew's account of the resurrection, it says, Now after the Sabbath, toward the dawn of the first day of the week, Mary Magdalene and the other Mary went to see the tomb. So just to give you a context, back in this time, what they would do is they would go to the loved ones, whoever were deceased, they would go to that tomb and they would anoint it with spices and perfumes because they didn't have the practices that they have today and the embalming practices. Uh, This time, the... That was not practiced normally in this type of setting. And so it would be similar that when you did that, when you as a family, or in this instance, when you had women go to do that, it was almost be the equivalent of us going to a graveside or a funeral service, and we bring flowers or buy a bouquet of flowers to put on display for the family, letting them know that we are mourning with them, that we love them. And so that was the practice back then. And so these women are going to do this, and look at verse 2, and it says, and behold, there was a great earthquake. Now, here's what's interesting in Matthew's account. He talks about Mary Magdalene, and he emphasizes Mary going to the tomb, and then all of a sudden, he does a flashback, just like a movie. Well, what took place before this day, or this time when Mary and Mary are going to the tomb, and it says, And behold, there was a great earthquake, for the angel of the Lord descended from heaven and came and rolled back the stone and sat on it. And his appearance was like lightning, and his clothing was white as snow. And for fear of him, the guards trembled and became like dead men. But the angel, now we're back, present time here, flashback over. But the angel said to the woman, do not be afraid, for I know that you seek Jesus who was crucified. He is not here, for he has risen. Like you ought to just underline that phrase in your Bible. And he said, come and see the place where he lay, and then go quickly and tell his disciples that he's risen from the dead, and behold, he is going before you to Galilee, and there you will see him. See, I have told you. So they departed quickly from the tomb with fear Not necessarily fear like I'm afraid, but fear in the sense of awe, like I can't believe this has just happened. 
And they came with fear and great joy and ran to tell his disciples. Verse 9, and behold, Jesus met them and said, met these women and said, greetings. And they came and they took hold of his feet and they worshiped him. And then Jesus said to them, do not be afraid. Go and tell my brothers to go to Galilee and there they will see me. I said that many of us have come in here asking questions. And so I see three questions in this passage of Scripture that the resurrection answers. And so I just want to simply give you three of those questions that I believe you have asked in the past, you are asking right now, or you probably will ask in the future. You may ask them of yourself. God may ask them and put them into your mind. But I believe that the resurrection answers these three questions. And here's the first question that you may be asking right now, or God may be asking of you as you sit in this place today. Who or what are you seeking? Because we're all seeking something. We're either seeking someone or we're seeking something to give us what we believe we need. And so I think a question that we ask ourselves or is asked of us is who or what am I seeking? Who or what are you seeking? And I say that the resurrection answers that question because I love in verse five that the angel that talks to these women says, I know that you're seeking. Like what he's literally saying is, I know why you came here. Because these women who are going to this tomb were not coming to a tomb skipping and being joyful, one thinking to themselves, we're going to see an empty tomb today. They were actually going to the tomb thinking that our Jesus that we love has failed. Our Jesus that we love is dead. Our dreams and ambitions of what this Jesus would do in, in removing us from Roman oppression like all of those dreams that we had of what was going to happen when we listened to Jesus talk and we saw Jesus heal people and we saw all of the beautiful things that Jesus did, not only were they believing and knowing and thinking that they were going to see a tomb that testified that Jesus was dead, but in their minds they were going to a place and to a person that showed them that day that their dreams were dead. And I love how the angel says, hey, I know what you're seeking. I know you came here seeking. And what God wants you to know today, listen to me, whatever you're seeking, God wants you to know today, what he's saying to you today is, I know you're seeking. I know you're wondering how to answer that. And I love the compassion of God in this, in this verse speaking through the angels. He says, I know. You seek Jesus who was crucified. You seek the Jesus who has failed. You seek the one whom your dreams was put upon and they failed. And every one of us are seeking something. And every one of us have something inside of us that longs to have that that someone or that something fill the void that's inside every one of us if we've not placed our faith and trust in Jesus Christ. And for some of us, that may be an occupation. 
And we're thinking, man, if I just get this job, as I graduate from college, if I can just get this job, or if I'm a grad student, if I can just get this job, that this job is going to fulfill me in a way that I'm not fulfilled right now. Or if I just get this raise that I'm hoping my boss will give me, then I'll reach a fulfillment. Or if I just get this possession, or if I just have this relationship, or if I just can have a girlfriend, or a boyfriend, or get married, or have children, all of those being amazing things, then I will be fulfilled. And for some of us in this room, we're seeking one of those things that I mentioned or seeking something else. And what I want you to understand, first of all, is that God is not judging you because you're seeking something that truly isn't going to give you what you want, but he just simply says, I know you're seeking. But here's the second question that I see, and it's found in verses six through eight. And it's the question that you'll ask yourself or will be asked of you at some point in your life, and here it is. Has the who or what you've been seeking given you joy? Like, ask yourself that right now. Has that thing, has that person, has that achievement that you've been seeking, and now you may even have it, has it filled that void and has it given you joy. You know, some of you may know this name. I've mentioned it actually before if you call this place your home and I've mentioned this, this uh, shown this chart before, but there's a gentleman named Abraham Maslow. If you're a psychology major, you took any psychology classes, you're a therapist in here, you know this name well. Because Abraham Maslow, who came up with this idea and this theory and, and um, came up with this chart that was called a hierarchy of needs. How many of you ever heard of that? Raise your hand. Okay, pretty much everybody in here. A hierarchy of needs. And, and this was introduced in 1943. And so here's how Abraham Maslow came up with this. He, he based this idea on several years of observing the most successful and intelligent members of society. So he found people that were accomplished, that were intelligent, like the best of the best, and observed them. And here's what he concluded. He concluded that all people have certain basic needs. And you see those needs there on the screen. And you see that first one. It's the physiological need, like it's, we have a need for food. We have a need for clothing. We have a need for shelter. We would all agree with that. The next one that he mentions is we all have a need for safety. We want to feel secure. We want to feel safe. No disagreements there. The next one he would say is we have a need to be loved or belong. And we would all agree with that, that every person should have the right to be loved, to belong. And, and we all know that when that's removed from someone, especially at an early age, the, the consequences and the trauma and, and, and the damage that that can cause. So, so far, I have no disagreements. And then he, then he says self-esteem. We all have a need to, to, to feel that we're worth something. And we would all say yes to that. And then at the top of the pyramid, he says, here's the highest of human needs. This is the crowning human desire. It's this self-actualization. In other words, the idea to be all you can be. That once someone reaches this, the, the crown of 
human desire that once you reach, man, I've, I've accomplished all I believe and I can accomplish, look at everything that I've done, that when you reach that point, that that personal fulfillment was the ultimate need of an individual, and man, you would say, oh, I'm totally full. But here's what he came to realize, because there was another book written in 1971 from his findings, and it was this, this was what it was called. It was called The Farther Reaches of Human Nature. So 1943 to 1971, when this work came out, and in this work, it had Abraham Maslow's findings over a couple decades of, of his theory, and it, it acknowledged that his subjects were not satisfied in their own accomplishments and experiences, but were still looking for meaning beyond themselves. Interesting, right? Here was his conclusion that human longing can only be fulfilled in something outside of the individual. See, every one of those needs that Abraham Maslow identified, we wouldn't disagree with any of them. Because those were all needs that God hardwired us with. But he didn't hardwire us with those needs so that we could find that fulfillment in things or people. He hardwired those needs inside of us so that we would look for someone, something greater than ourselves to fulfill it. And what I love is in this passage of Scripture, Jesus being risen and the angel saying, he's not here, he's risen. Come and see the place where he lay. What he's saying is, is listen, I know, women, that you came here seeking. But what you're seeking isn't here because the person who isn't here is the person who promises and will fulfill and give you the joy that you're longing for. See, Christ is telling you today, Christ is telling you, he's telling me, he's telling all of us today, just like the angel told those women, he's saying, come and see. Come and see. I want you to see something. I know you're asking questions and you've come to realize that what you were seeking or what you thought would bring you joy hasn't, that those things didn't follow through on the expectations that you placed upon them, but come and see. I want you to see something because Jesus Christ came to meet my greatest need. And Jesus Christ came to meet your greatest need. And what Jesus is telling us today in the story of, re of the resurrection, what he's telling you is come and see. But come and see what? To come and see, first of all, that Jesus is your provider. He's your provider. He's my provider. Remember that chart? What is our most basic need? It's the physiological need. I need food. I need clothing. I need shelter. And what I love is every one of the needs that are on that chart, we're going to see that Jesus Christ came to fulfill in you by being what he said he would be, that he would defeat death, that he would defeat hell for you and me. And he's my provider. I love that when Jesus was teaching on the Sermon on the Mount, 
in Matthew chapter 6, while he was ministering before he went to the cross and rose again, that he's teaching on this Sermon on the Mount, the most amazing sermon that was ever preached. And on Matthew chapter 6, he's on the mountaintop and he's teaching and he, he says these words. He says, do not be anxious about your life, what you will eat or what you will drink, nor about your body or what you will put on. Don't get anxious and worry yourself into such a lather over the things like that, your physiological needs. Look at what he says. He says in verse 26, just listen. He says, look at the birds of the air. They neither sow nor reap nor gather into barns, yet your heavenly Father feeds them. Are you not of more value than they? Here's what I've never seen. I've never seen a bird with a face of worry. Never seen it. Seen lots of birds but I've never seen a bird worry. And I know that's kind of a silly statement to make, but what Jesus is saying, he's using hyperbole here to say, hey, the birds don't worry about where they're gonna get their next meal and you're of so much more value than the birds. I love you. I've come to live a perfect life for you, to die on the cross for your sin, to be risen again. Don't you think that I'm gonna take care of your physical needs? I'm your provider. That's what Jesus is wanting you to come and see today. But not just that he's your provider, but that he is your savior. He's your savior. Because you may realize this today, or maybe you've heard this today, or maybe, maybe you hear, you'll hear this for the first time, but I want you to know that I have a problem, and it's the same problem that you have. And you know what it is? We all have a sin problem. Every one of us. Nobody in here is perfect. Oh, we can pretend to be, but we're not fooling anybody. Every one of us have a sin problem. And Romans 3.23 says, For all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. God is holy. He's without sin. I'm a sinner. Therefore, I've fallen short of his standard. That's who I am. And that's who you are. And Romans 6.23 says that what I deserve because of my sin, that the wages of my sin is death. And I know some of us in this room would say, well, here's how I always kind of approach life. I approach life that I'm going to do a bunch of good, and hopefully the good that I do outweighs the bad, and I can always find someone who's worse off than I am. I can always find someone who's done more sin. I can always find someone who's cheated on their wife. I've never cheated on my wife. I've never cheated on my husband. I, I give to nonprofits everywhere. I mean, we can, we can all justify ourselves, but what's interesting in Isaiah 64, 6 in God's Word, it says, any of our righteous, our good deeds are like a polluted garment before a holy God because no matter how much good I do it still doesn't eliminate the sin that I've done or the sin that I'll continue to do but I love Romans 5 8 because Romans 5 8 I feel like is one of the most beautiful verses that describes God's love in such a short way Romans 5 8 says but God demonstrated he showed us his love in this way that in the midst of my sin, in other words, at my worst, when I was actually at my worst, whatever worst thing that you can imagine right now that you said, man, I'm, I have so much shame and so much guilt over this thing that I've done and I know it was wrong and I know it was filthy. That Romans 5, 8 says that God dem demonstrated his love to you that in the midst of your sin, at that point, at your worst, that's when Christ loved you. And what he wants you to come and see today is that he's your savior. That need that you have for safety that's hardwired into you, Jesus Christ came to meet that need. And he met it in the name and the work and the person of Jesus Christ. 
But it's interesting that Maslow said we have another need. He says we have a, he says we have a need to be loved and belong. And here's what else is interesting. Jesus says, hey, I just don't want you to come and see that I'm your provider, that I'm your savior. But I want you to come and see that I've provided for you an identity. I'm going to give you an identity. See, as much as we want to define ourselves by what we do or who we're married to or what we've done or what we've accomplished, and we want to tie our identity to that, and we want to feel accomplished, and we want to feel loved, and and we want to feel a sense of belonging, that I belong to something, when we tie our identity to any other person or any other thing outside of Jesus Christ, we're still going to fail a sense of longing. But what Jesus says is, I've come to give you an identity. I've come to show you what love's really like because I loved you when you had nothing to give. I love you unconditionally. I love you in spite of who you are, in spite of what you've done. First John 3, 1 says it this way. See what kind of love the Father has given to us we should be called the children of God? Do you see that type of love that Jesus left heaven to come, to put on human flesh, to be born in a baby in a lowly, poor way, to, to know what it's like to be hungry, to know what it's like to feel pain, to know what it's like to be betrayed, to know what it's like to be tempted? And Jesus did all of that, and he lived perfection because he knew that you and I couldn't live it, and he died a cruel death on the cross, and he rose again three days later. Why? So that you could come and see that Jesus is the one that gives you our, your identity. It meets that need of to be loved, a sense of belonging, a, self, a sense of self-esteem. Like some of you, man, you've been pining for everything because you feel so low and you feel so empty and, you, and, and nobody else, whether you're at school, man, they're all putting you down and they're, and, they're, and they're just giving you words of hate and all that and you just feel about this small and you know what's gonna make, you know what's gonna give you the sense of self-esteem that you've been longing for? It's not gonna be how many friends you have. It's not who you're gonna be accepted by, by another person because we're all sinners. We're all gonna fail people. It's by me running to Jesus and saying, Jesus, you're the one that's only gonna love me the way that I need. You're the only one that's gonna love me unconditionally and you're the only one that gave up everything so that I could have a relationship with you. That's where the need of self-esteem and to be loved and belonging is found. It's found in Jesus. And then let's think about the top of that pyramid, right? That self-actualization. Be all you can be. Accomplish all you can be. And what I love is Jesus says, hey, I want you to come and see. Look in the empty tomb. Come and see. I'm your provider. I'm your salvation. I've given you an identity but I'm also your creator. I gave you a purpose. Because Ephesians 2.10 says, if I place my faith and trust in Jesus Christ, I'm his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand. In other words, God gave me a purpose to my life that I should walk in it. And when I place my faith and trust in Jesus Christ, man, now all of a sudden I have a purpose Like I no longer live my life for myself, but I live it for the one who loved me and gave himself for me. And I'm gonna live my life in such a way that I want other people to see that my life has been changed and is changing. See, even society who doesn't know anything about Jesus can identify the needs that we have, but only one person can truly meet them. 
Only one person can truly give us the joy that we've all been searching for, that we're all asking, where do I find it? Here's the third question. Who and what are you worshiping? Who and what are you worshiping this morning? Because look at verses 9 and 10. It says, And behold, Jesus met them, the women, and said, Greetings. And look at the women's response. They came up and took hold of his feet and worshiped him. Worshiped him. Let me just say as a side note as well to testify to the authenticity of this story is back in these times when the, when the Bible was written, when Matthew was written, when the Gospels were written, you did not authenticate your story by women witnesses. Now, thankfully, we progressed a long time in 2,000 years. But back then, they did not. So if the disciples of Jesus were wanting to put on a sham, they surely would have not said that the first people that saw Jesus were women. Which just once again is another evidence to the legitimacy of the story. But it says when they came up, they took hold of his feet and they worshiped him. I want to ask you this morning, what are you holding on to tightly? What is it? Maybe you're holding on to something tightly and you know you shouldn't be, but you you are so scared to let it go and you're holding on to it tightly. Let me tell you something. Whatever you're holding on to tightly is what you're worshiping. Because these women said, man, I just want to grab hold of Jesus' feet. I can't believe I came to the tomb seeking death, seeking failure. I came to that tomb hopeless, and now I seem that my joy is back. My Savior is risen, and I want to worship him. I wonder what we're worshiping. Because I want to give you these three things, because I think the resurrection of Christ gives us every conceivable reason to worship Jesus. And can I just give you three real quickly? Here's the first one. It's found in verse two when the angel said, the angel descended from heaven and came and rolled back the stone and sat on it. Here's the first reason we have to worship Jesus. I worship him because the resurrection displays his power in my life. I mean, I love that story in the way that it's worded in Matthew 28 that literally it says the angel came, he rolled away the stone, and then there's just, at least I see it this way, a little bit of smack talk in there. Can you see it? Like he rolled away the stone, and then what does he do? He sits on the thing that the Romans thought would keep Jesus in the grave, and he says, I'll show you what I think of this stone. I'm just going to sit on it. I'm going to sit on it and tell the people coming, hey, you want to see where Jesus is? Come on and see him. Yeah, that's right. I'm sitting on this thing that you thought would keep our Savior in the grave. And what I think is interesting is the stone wasn't rolled away so that Jesus could get out. Jesus could have busted through anything that anyone would have put. They could have wrapped that thing in a million different chains and it wouldn't have, got, and it wouldn't have kept Jesus in. The stone wasn't rolled away so that Jesus could get out. The stone was rolled away so that you could look in. So that we could see today that the resurrection shows me that I can have power in my life. That I can have victory in my life. That I don't need to live as a failure in my life. And Romans 8 testifies that, that the same spirit that raised Jesus from the dead lives inside of every follower of Jesus Christ. I have the power 
to live a victorious life. That's one of the main reasons that I can worship Jesus Christ today is because of his power for my life. But here's another reason. I worship him because the resurrection displays his perspective for my life. Because to reference verse 6 again, he's, the angel says, hey, the Jesus that you're looking for, he's not here, for he has risen. And just in case you're doubting, come and see. See, here's my greatest desire for every person in this room. Is that Easter would be more than just something that you celebrated and attended and an event to where you can dress up a little bit more, put on some bright clothes, go have an Easter egg hunt, go out to lunch, celebrate your, with your family, and those are all amazing things. But my greatest desire for you, and more importantly, God's greatest desire for you, is that Easter would be more than an event. More than an event. But it would be something that would change your life, that it would be something that would give meaning to your life, that it would be something that would change the way that you see life, that you see every situation that you encounter, that Easter would be something that would give you a resurrected perspective, that whatever it is that you're going through today, that you would not ever believe that that thing is too far gone, but the same power and the same person that rose from the dead can raise to life whatever situation it is. You're never too far gone from God's grace. If you're here today and you say, you don't know what I've done. You don't know the guilt that I'm struggling with. Wait a minute. It's time for a resurrected perspective. It's time to place your hope and trust in Jesus Christ who loved you unconditionally, who came to give you ev to meet every single one of your needs. That's what Easter's about. It's about a resurrected perspective. And some of us, as followers of Jesus Christ, we know this story. We celebrate it every year. But what God wants us to do is this would be an everyday thing in our life, that every day I get up, regardless of my circumstances, I'm like, Lord, it seems dark right now. Lord, it's, it's hard right now. But here's what I know. There's always hope. There's always light. Because Jesus, you rose again from the dead, and I have the Holy Spirit living inside of me. And there's nothing that will separate me from your love. And as bad as this life may be right now, it's never going to compare to the great that I will enjoy with you forever in heaven. Here's the last thing. I worship him because the resurrection displays his purpose for my life. Because here's what's awesome in verse 10. The angel says to them, hey, come and see. But he, then what he says is go and tell. See, what Jesus Christ wants for me is for me to receive that salvation offered freely from Jesus Christ, not by works of righteousness, which I've done, but according to his mercy, he saved me. It's a free gift. If I had to do something to earn it, then I could take credit for it, but I can earn it because I'm a sinner. And once I accept that salvation, then what God desires me to do is live in such a way through the power of the Holy Spirit to demonstrate to others that I am a person that's been changed by Jesus. And I want to tell everyone about it, not just with my words, but with my actions.